Okay, this, uh, this lecture will be on, on time preference, on interest and capital and capital accumulation. Um, I have already touched upon um, the problem of capital accumulation to a certain extent. Uh, recall that uh, agricultural societies make it possible for the first time that capital goods are accumulated, whereas uh, the possibilities of accumulating much in terms of capital goods under uh, hunter and gatherer societies that move from place to place uh, is, um, is very limited. Um, and uh, this subject is, so to speak, the third, the third dimension that we need to cover in order to understand uh, the wealth of nations apart from ideological factors to which I will come um, uh, tomorrow uh, besides division of labor, uh, besides uh, the development of money and the universalization of uh, money, uh, capital accumulation is the third leg, so to speak, on which uh, societies uh, stand. Um, let me begin with, uh, yeah, with some uh, theoretical considerations, uh, some theoretical explanations <laughs> about the phenomenon of time preference and how it relates to uh, capital and capital accumulation in particular. Um, People do not just have a preference for more goods over less. Um, I explained that this preference explains, for instance, why there is division of labor. Um, people also have a preference of goods earlier, satisfaction earlier, as compared to satisfaction later, goods later. Um, uh, mankind cannot wait forever for uh, satisfaction. Um, uh, waiting for certain results uh, involves a sacrifice. Um, and without capital goods, you recall we make the distinction between consumer goods which are directly useful and in my first lecture I explained of course that besides directly useful consumer goods we also employ producer goods that are only indirectly useful. Um, there are very few desires that we can satisfy uh, immediately, uh, instantaneously. Um, might be picking a berry that immediately leads to satisfaction. And there is, of course, uh, leisure time, uh, just lazing around, that can also be uh, immediately satisfied without doing anything else about it. But uh, most of our um, desires uh, require that we use intermediate products in order to satisfy them um, or 
we need intermediate products in order to be more productive. That is, if we want to increase the amount of immediately usable consumer goods, we have to go about it in some sort of, some sort of roundabout way rather than directly picking berries and satisfying us um, in this way. Um, so what capital goods do is capital goods allow us uh, a, greater, a greater production of the same goods um, or they allow us to produce goods that cannot be attained without the help of capital goods at all. Um, and in order to attain capital goods, um, it is necessary that, um, that we save, um, that we consume less than we could consume and use these saved up funds, so to speak, uh, in order to feed us during the period of time that is necessary in order to complete uh, the construction of capital goods, with the help of which then we can attain uh, a larger output of consumer goods or attain goals that we could not attain without capital goods um, at all. So this restriction of possible consumption uh, is what we call uh, savings. And the transfer of our saved funds um, uh, allocating using land and uh, labor um, to, um, to construct or bring into existence capital goods uh, is called uh, investment. Um, and the question that we always face is the following. Um, does the utility um, um, that is achieved by the higher productivity of longer roundabout production processes, does the utility that we achieve by uh, roundabout methods of production exceed the subjective sacrifice uh, that we um, must make of present goods that we could conceivably uh, consume. Um, or put it differently, uh, the decision of an actor uh, on uh, what objects to invest uh, will depend on the expected utility of the forthcoming consumer goods on the durability of these forthcoming um, consumer goods uh, and on the lengths that it takes before we 
attain these uh, future uh, consumer goods. And we can then explain the entire act of deciding whether or not to perform an act of capital formation as the balancing of uh, relative uh, utilities, that is the utility of the expected, uh, the, the pr present utility that we attach to future goods uh, as compared to the utility of uh, present, uh, present goods available to consumption discounted by the rate of time preference. That is, uh, by our rate with which we value present goods more highly than uh, future goods. Present goods are always valued more highly than future goods. Present goods sell at a premium against future goods or uh, put it the other way around, uh, future goods sell at a discount against present goods. And this phenomenon, uh, this discount or this premium, uh, depending on uh, what the angle is from which we look at the phenomenon, uh, is called uh, interest. Um, and um, uh, I want to uh, illustrate these uh, uh, initial abstract uh, remarks by um, looking for a moment at a simple Robinson uh, Crusoe uh, economy. Uh, let's assume that uh, Robinson Crusoe um, is the most knowledgeable person on earth. Uh, he knows all technological recipes that mankind knows, uh, but is stranded uh, on an island and on this island, there is initially nothing else but uh, land, that is nature-given resources, and labor, his own uh, body and his own knowledge incorporated uh, in it. And um, assume for a second that the immediately available consumer good that is available to him uh, are fish. Um, and uh, Robinson Crusoe now has to uh, make a decision as to how he will produce this consumer good of fish. Um, given, as I assume, that Robinson Crusoe knows every technological recipe under the sun. Um, we can imagine that he knows various techniques how to attain his end, that is uh, fish as consumer goods. So he can, for instance, use his bare hands uh, to attain fish. Uh, to be grabbing into the water and pulling the fish out. Um, he can build a net uh, to produce fish. Uh, he can build a fishing trawler. Um, 
the boat with, with a net attached. And we might easily imagine that there exist various other technologies that, his, that he is aware of um, as well. Um, the question is then that Robinson Crusoe faces, uh, what shall I do? How shall I produce fish? And uh, the first thing that is worth pointing out here is uh, that the fact uh, that he knows uh, extremely productive methods of catching fish, let's say using a fishing trawler, um, that this fact does not help him much in his initial situation. Um, and the reason for this uh, should be obvious. Uh, the reason has to do with the fact that uh, he is constrained by time preference. That is, he cannot wait forever until the satisfaction of his most urgent desires. And if he would start building a fishing trawler, uh, then he would likely be long dead before the fishing trawler <laughs> is ever completed. Um, so what he will likely have to do is uh, he will have to start with a, in a capitalless uh, mode of production without any capital goods, just using his bare hands uh, to get fish out of uh, out of the pond or the river, whatever the waters there are. Um, and um, uh, he will then have to, uh, if, if he is done at the end of the day and he has caught 10 fish, um, he will have to make a decision what he will do with these 10 fish. Um, obviously, if he decides I will consume at the end of the day all 10 fish, then the next day he will be exactly in the same position that he was on day one. Um, on the other hand, if he decides that I will put away some fish, uh, a certain fraction of those that he could consume, uh, then he engages in an act of saving. Um, and uh, he can now form some sort of expectation, how long will it take me to build the net? And what will be the output of fish per hour, let's say, that I can attain with the help of a net? Um, and based on his uh, evaluation of this time lag, well that, let's take a week to build the net, uh, and his expectation, I will double or triple my output, um, he can now decide, so to speak, uh, how much or how little he wants to save. Um, if Robinson Crusoe has what we call a high degree of time preference. That is, he prefers present goods very 
highly over future goods, um, meaning saving represents a great sacrifice for him, um, then the process of saving will be relatively slow and it takes quite a while before he has accumulated enough fish, saved enough fish, in order to be in the position to say, now I have saved enough fish in order to feed myself during the week that is necessary in order to build the net. Um, and once the net comes into existence, then his standard of living goes up. The same, of course, if he wants to move from stage two to stage three. Again, he would have to make an estimation of how long will it take me to build that fishing trawler? What will be the likely uh, increase in productivity that I can achieve if I have a fishing trawler um, available? And then he determines uh, how much or how little in terms of savings he is willing, uh, willing to do. Again, if his time preference is very high, uh, preferring present satisfaction very much over future satisfaction, then the process of going from here to here will take very long. If his time preference is very low, that is, he is willing to make larger sacrifices. He can delay his future gratification more uh, and save more than the process of going from stage one to stage two and from stage two to stage three is uh, shorter. Each way along the line, uh, his standard of living increases. It should be clear from the outset that no one would engage in the construction of any capital goods unless he expected that production with the help of a capital good is more productive than production without the help of a capital good. If I can uh, produce 10 fish per day by using my bare hands, and if I can also only produce 10 fish per day by using a net, then obviously the net would never come into existence because the entire time spent on constructing the net would be nothing but sheer waste. That is, capital goods are always brought into existence with the expectation that uh, capital goods, production with capital goods, is more productive than production without uh, capital goods. Because of this, because of the productivity of capital goods, people are only willing to pay a price for it. Um, if the net would not yield a higher output per hour than the bare hands, then obviously nobody would ever be willing to pay a price. Uh, for the net. If the fishing trawler would not promise a larger output uh, per hour 
then the net, um, uh, the, uh, the price of the fishing trawler could not conceivably be higher than the price of, uh, of the net and so forth. Um, what holds men back, so to speak, in as far as investment and capital goods accumulation is concerned is always time preference. Um, we do not automatically choose, so to speak, the most productive method, um, but it is time preference and related to it savings um, that allows us or does not allow us to choose certain techniques or not to choose certain, um, certain techniques. Um, let me just, in order to illustrate this concept of uh, time preference a little bit more, um, use some examples, some of which you find in Mises, some of which uh, I um, I developed. Um, uh, let's assume we would be like angels uh, who can live off love and air alone. Um, that is, who have no need for consumption. Um, we can imagine that an angel, for instance, would in fact produce, so to speak, immediately uh, in, the most, uh, in the most productive fashion, even though the angel would not have any motive to produce at all. After all, he can live off love and uh, air alone. Uh, but let's say he had some sort of fun to produce large amounts of goods. Um, uh, <laughs> because the angel could wait forever. Um, the interest rate, the degree to which he prefers present goods to future goods is zero. It doesn't make any difference for him whether he has the fish right now or the fish in 10,000 years. Um, for us, who are somewhat less than angelic, uh, <laughs> That does, of course, make a tremendous difference uh, whether we have a fish 10,000 years from now uh, or today or uh, in one week. So we are constrained by time preference. Our interest rate is positive. It is higher than zero. Um, take another example that helps you illustrate this um, concept of time preference. Um, let's assume, for instance, and this gets us already in some sort of cultural influence on, um, on this phenomenon of time preference and uh, capital accumulation. Let's assume, for instance, uh, that we would know that the world will end in one week from now. And we are all perfectly certain that this is going to happen. The day after uh, tomorrow. The day or the day after tomorrow. <laughs> um, 
what would then happen, so to speak, to the willingness of exchanging a present good for a future good? And the answer is, of course, this willingness would essentially disappear. The interest rate in this case would skyrocket. Uh, nothing, no interest payment would be high enough in order to induce anybody to sacrifice current consumption for a higher amount of future consumption because, after all, there is no future for us. Um, as I said, there are, for instance, uh, certain, uh, certain sects, uh, religious sects, who believe that, uh, uh, that the world will go down and uh, very quickly we will be, the good guys will go to heaven and the bad guys will go someplace else. <laughs> um, and these people, of course, then do stop to uh, save. Uh, they will just have one more glorious day of consumption. <laughs> and then, of course, the whole story will be over. Um, as I said, all humans prefer present goods over future goods, but the degree to which people do this is different from individual to individual and also from specific groups to other specific groups. Um, let me just give you a few examples uh, of which we know was pretty good certainty that their degree of time preference differs on the average. Um, take little children, for instance. Um, little children have a very high degree of time preference. Another way to say it, little children have tremendous difficulties delaying gratification. Um, very high rewards in the future uh, do not necessarily induce children uh, to make the current sacrifice of not consuming, of not satisfying current desires. Uh, there have been experiments done in this regard, uh, like you give a, a dollar to a child and tell them if you don't spend the dollar until tomorrow, I'll double the amount. You get another dollar. And if you then, tomorrow, have not spent two dollars, I will again double it and give you four dollars, and so forth. Um, you realize how high the interest rate here is. It's 100% <laughs> per day. You can roughly, if you have a calculator, you can figure out what sort of annual interest rate <laughs> that is. Um, and nonetheless, uh, you will find that many children are absolutely incapable <laughs> of accepting a deal such as this. Uh, they have to rush out to the next 7-Eleven and get their big gulp right now, <laughs> even though they could have two big gulps or four big gulps in a very short, in, in a very short uh, uh, distance in, uh, in the future. Or another way to illustrate this would be to say, 
we offer a child a perfectly secure certificate of $100 in one year from now. Um, but the child has uh, the possibility of selling this perfectly safe, secure promise of $100 one year from now in the present. Then we will find that children might be willing to just sell this whatever for 10 cents. <laughs> um, because waiting is basically intolerable for them. Um, let me give you a few other examples. And you realize, of course, uh, depending on sort of what mentality exists in the public, uh, capital accumulation can take forever or can uh, go quite quickly. If Robinson Crusoe would have a childlike mentality, he might never ever reach this second stage, or if he does reach it, it might take him about 100 years before he does. Um, let me give some other examples of groups. Um, very old people are sometimes said to go through a second childhood. Um, not necessarily so. Uh, because very old people can, of course, also provide for future generations. Um, but assuming that they do not care for future generations, they might not have any offspring or any friend that they want to uh, uh, hand over their, their own fortune, then, because their own lifestyle, uh, lifespan is very short, they have not much of a future left, they again go through the phase of a second childhood by and large consuming uh, and stopping more or less entirely um, to, um, uh, to accumulate. Um, we can take the example of, um, of criminals, which are also typically speaking, and I mean the normal run-of-the-mill type criminal, not the white-collar type criminal, the muggers, the murderers, the rapists, and those friendly figures. Um, they are also characterized by typically by high time preference. Um, the way I explain this to my students is always uh, using the following example. Uh, sometimes people hiss at it. Uh, uh, most people like it. Um, a norm, imagine a normal person, so to speak, that is in pursuit of a girl or vice versa, a girl in pursuit of a man. Um, then what we do, of course, is we take her out to dinner and we bring her flowers. We take her out to dinner again. Um, <laughs> we listen to the conversation. We are very impressed by all the deep thoughts that we hear. We have never heard anything interesting like that before in our lives. Um, of course, with some expectations. 
which are, of course, in the more or less distant future. Um, this is how normal people operate. Um, if you have a childlike mentality, but you have that in an adult body, uh, <laughs> then this sort of stuff is almost an impossible sacrifice. Um, you cannot wait that long and then you become whatever, a rapist or something of that nature. Normally, in order to satisfy any desire, we have to work for a day, at least for a day, then we get paid at the end of the day, and then we can buy our beer. Um, but what if a day of waiting is too long? Uh, the only other alternative that you have there is uh, look for some old lady and uh, rob her of her purse uh, and this way satisfy uh, your desires. Um, let me give you uh, another, uh, another example um, that already touches upon some uh, lecture that I will give later on in the week. Uh, democratic politicians also have a very high degree of time preference. They are in power for a very short period of time. Um, and uh, what they do not loot right now, <laughs> they will not be able to loot in five, six years. Uh, so their intention is, of course, I have to milk the public as much as possible because then with a lot of tax income I can make myself right now a lot of friends. Uh, and who cares about uh, the future? Um, the last example is one that has gotten me in deep trouble recently at the univers my university. Uh, I have used that example for 16 years or so and had never any problem with it whatsoever. Um, this time, however, uh, some fanatic uh, wanted to bring me down. This whole process is still underway. Um, so I warn you uh, not to bring harassment suits against me again. I've had, <laughs> I've had it up to here with this. Um, I also made the point that, look, if you compare uh, regular heterosexuals with families to homosexuals, you can also say that homosexuals have a higher time preference because life ends with them. I always thought that that was so obvious, uh, almost beyond dispute, and then pointed out in the next sentence that this helps us understand, for instance, the attitude of a man like Keynes, uh, whose economic philosophy is, in the long run, we are all dead. Now, this is true, so to speak, for some people, but it is not true for most people who, of course, have their own children and so forth, future generations to come. Um, as I said, these harmless remarks uh, have led to three months of harassment at my university and the whole thing is still not over yet. <laughs> um, 
So, so much about the concept of, uh, of time preference. And um, now I want to um, say a few words about um, uh, the development of time preference and of interest over time in the course of history. Um, as you can imagine, this is not difficult to get intuitively immediately clear. Um, we would expect that the degree of time preference uh, gradually falls in the course of human history. Um, something like this. Here we have interest or degree of time preference on one axis and here we have real money income. That is income that can be converted into immediate present satisfaction. Then we would expect that with very low real income the sacrifice of exchanging a present good for a future good is very high and people will save and invest a small amount and as real incomes rise the interest rate will gradually tend to fall. That is savings, the volume of savings and investing will become greater. Again, intuitively, that is perfectly clear. For a rich man, it is easier to save and invest than it is for a poor man. Um, if we look over the course of history, we would find uh, capital uh, accumulation, savings and investment, does, so to speak, become successively easier. Uh, it is more difficult at the beginning of mankind requires a bigger sacrifice and it becomes successively easier as we grow um, as we grow wealthier. This is something that we can indeed see in history. Um, this has been studied long-run interest rates uh, for the safest possible investments and so forth and we find by and large that interest rates fall. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule. If you have wars and so forth, then you have an increase in interest rates because the risk attached to uh, loans becomes significantly, uh, significantly higher. Um, uh, but we also have certain periods when uh, the degree of time preference does seem to rise. Um, I will come back to that again later on in an, uh, a later lecture. This seems to be something that has happened in the 20th century. Um, we should have expected that interest rates, real interest rates in the 20th century should be lower than in the 19th century given that on the average wealth in society is greater in the 20th century than in the 19th. Uh, however, we do not find this to be true. That is, the interest rates 
in the 20th century, rarely, if ever, the real interest rates reached the low point that they reached around 1900, which was about two and a quarter percent. Um, so the conclusion would be for this, for instance, uh, that this entire time preference schedule must have risen in the 20th century, which would, would uh, amount to saying that uh, the population in the 20th century has become somewhat more childlike uh, than the population uh, in the 19th century. We are somewhat more, how, I can, how can I say it, uh, frivolous and hedonistic in our lifestyle than our forefathers, our parents, and our grandfathers were, despite the fact that it was more difficult for them to engage in savings and capital accumulation than it is for us. Um, now a, wor a word about the accumulation of capital. Obviously, in every society, it is possible to add something to the existing stock of capital to maintain the existing stock of capital uh, or to deplete the existing stock of capital. Even to maintain the existing stock of capital, continued savings is necessary because all capital goods wear out over time. That is what we call capital consumption. Um, Capital consumption, however, can take quite some time be before it becomes visible because capital goods last for a long time. Um, for instance, when the communists took over Russia, they inherited, of course, a substantial stock of capital goods, machines, houses, and so forth. And things then can still go on for a while um, but if, due to the fact uh, that uh, no private property in factors of production exists anymore and accordingly practically no savings will be forthcoming, you could expect that eventually, of course, this inherited stock of capital goods will dilapidate and whatever, in 10, 20, 30 years, you will experience some sort of catastrophe, all the capital goods are worn out, and nothing is there uh, to replace them. Um, the same thing is true for the process of capital accumulation. We can, or let me point out this first. Obviously, the amount of capital accumulation depends not just on the time preference that various individuals have, it depends also on the security of private property rights. Um, imagine Friday comes onto the island. We can imagine Friday to be like Robinson Crusoe, engaging in division of labor, then standards of living would go up, capital accumulation would even be faster than with Robinson Crusoe being alone, standards of living go higher and so forth. But we can also imagine that Friday is whatever, some mugger from Brooklyn 
and uh, he sees that Robinson Crusoe has already built the net or has already saved all sorts of fish. And he says, oh, very nice that you have done this already for me. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll take the net or I force you to pay a tax to me. Half of the fish that you produce every day, you hand over to me. Now, in that situation, you can, of course, easily imagine that the process of capital accumulation will be drastically slowed down uh, or will come to a complete uh, standstill. Um, so if we look at societies currently that are rich, we cannot necessarily infer that those societies that are currently rich are societies in which property rights receive the best possible protection. Um, what we can only infer is that these must be societies in which property rights must have been protected somewhere in the past. Um, and it might well be that we encourage that encounter societies that are quite poor right now um, and do have very secure private property rights of those societies we would expect that in the future they will show rapid, uh, rapid rates of growth. Um, so one might say, for instance, that to a large extent the endowment in the United States with capital goods is due to circumstances that are long gone. That is, a lot of the capital goods have been accumulated under far more favorable circumstances than the circumstances that currently exist. And we might already be in a phase of gradual capital consumption without actually knowing it. It might take us decades, so to speak, before actually finding out that this is the case. Um, as far as the United States itself is concerned, uh, savings rates in the United States are atrociously low. And to a large extent, the United States still benefits from the fact that they receive the savings from other countries who still consider the United States, despite the fact that property rights are no longer nearly as safe as they were in the 19th century. Just keep in mind, almost 40% of the saved up fish of Robinson Crusoe is nowadays handed over to the mugger from Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and in the ninth, uh, from Washington, and in the 19th century, this might have been whatever, uh, two or three percent of the output of Robinson Crusoe. Um, in any case, um, so capital needs to be preserved, and in order to preserve it, it is necessary that there exist. An institutional legal framework uh, that uh, uh, makes private property safe. And if this uh, framework is lacking, uh, then one should not be surprised that very little in terms of capital accumulation takes place or even capital consumption takes place. Just imagine a place where there is an impending communist revolution. 
where you must be fearful that maybe in the next election the communists will come to power and their first thing that they will do is expropriate all owners of capital goods. Now imagine what that does to your motivation to engage in savings and to accumulate additional capital. Large parts of the world are like this. That is, we explain the poverty of many countries by the fact that property rights in those countries have for many, many years, sometimes for centuries, not been secure enough for people to engage in savings and capital accumulation. Now I want to come to some historical illustration and I want to use um, population growth and city growth, so to speak, as vague approximations of what happens to capital accumulation. Recall, accumulating more capital means societies become richer. Societies becoming richer implies that larger numbers of population um, can be sustained. And just recall some of the numbers that I gave you uh, in previous lectures. Uh, 50,000 people lived about 100,000 years ago. Um, five million people lived at the beginning of the Neolithic Revolution, that is 10 to 12,000 years ago. Um, at the year uh, one, the population uh, is estimated to be somewhat between 170 million to 400 uh, million. A greatly, a far more rapid growth of population after the Neolithic Revolution, a doubling of the population every 1,300 years until the Neolithic Revolution, a doubling of the population every 13,000 years or so. That is, again, a reflection, so to speak, that under agricultural societies there is already a significant, uh, significantly increased amount of capital accumulation that allows this larger population um, to be um, to be sustained. Um, in the handout, you see some uh, on the second and third page. You see some uh, uh, estimates of of world population beginning at uh, ten thousand before Christ and going almost to the present until. Um, 1950, you, you see uh, also the, the wide variety of estimates, uh, considerable disagreement, especially in the early, uh, early periods of, um, of mankind. Um, uh, during the period beginning with the Neolithic, um, revolution, um, we see the development of uh, various civilizations. Uh, 
indicating obviously uh, sharp increases in the accumulation of capital goods. The table one gives you some sort of uh, historical overview of these um, various uh, civilizations, uh, the beginning and the end, uh, then uh, uh, the, the name of, uh, uh, of the most dominant uh, uh, group, and finally uh, the names of those groups that uh, were responsible for the destruction um, of these um, um, of these civilizations, um, I already indicated in the previous lecture that uh, in these early civilizations, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and so forth, um, uh, we experience for the first time major cities uh, coming into existence, uh, and we also have indications of um, yeah, uh, specific new technologies uh, being developed. Again, recall, uh, it requires a certain amount of wealth and capital accumulation in order to allow people to develop new inventions, uh, try out new things, and so forth. Uh, just to give you some examples of uh, the major technological uh, and capital goods developments that took place during the uh, Babylonian um, uh, civilization um, that is in the period of 4,500 before Christ to 2,500. Um, we find their plows for the first time. Um, we find wheeled carts for the first time. We find draft animals uh, being used in agriculture. We find bricks being used for the first time and uh, magnificent buildings erected. Um, we find what is quite unique and has not been repeated independently anywhere else in history, but has been an imported invention to other areas, uh, the invention of, of, an, of the ark, uh, which allows, of course, constructions that otherwise would collapse under their own, uh, under their own weight. Um, we find um, uh, the potter, potter wheel. Um, we find uh, copper smelting. Um, we find the development of bronze, uh, which is a combination of tin and copper at a certain combination, one, one to 10. Um, we find the development of writing, again, which indicates, so to speak, that there must have been a class of uh, intellectuals in existence uh, who can only be supported if there exists a certain amount of wealth in society and a certain amount of wealth of course requires a certain amount of uh, capital accumulation. Um, uh, we find uh, quite uh, uh, far developed uh, mathematical techniques uh, in um, uh, in Babylonia, and, uh, and we, we find uh, traces of 
metallic uh, money being used. And obviously, in the cities, which reached sizes of 80,000 people or so, um, we had uh, uh, quite an extent of uh, specialized, uh, specialized professions uh, uh, coming, on, uh, coming online. Um, but as I said, uh, there exist in history also um, periods that we can describe as economic disintegration. That is, some of these empires fall apart. There are invaders uh, that destroy them and uh, division of labor shrinks. Techniques that were once known become forgotten and we would expect then during those periods also a decline in population. If you look at the um, at the estimate of uh, world populations there, um, you find, for instance, then, um, that only from 1000 AD on do we again see something like a trend towards increase of population. Um, whereas with the fall of Rome uh, shortly after uh, 200 or so, the, the numbers closest here would be 200, we see by and large uh, uh, a stagnation in, uh, in the overall population. Uh, for almost uh, thousand years, uh, there is virtually no population growth uh, that, takes, um, that takes place. Um, and even in the period after 1000 um, AD, there are some centuries that see uh, a more or less significant uh, decline. Uh, look, for instance, at the um, uh, at the 13th, uh, uh, 13th century, um, uh, from 1200 to uh, 1300, um, there appears to be no increase in, uh, in world population, uh, indicating, so to speak, uh, capital uh, consumption taking place or at least no capital accumulation uh, taking place. And even more uh, clearly, uh, look at the 15th, uh, 15th century, that is here uh, 1400s. Um, there is a clear decline during this century in terms of population as compared to the previous, um, to the previous century. And it takes almost uh, 200 years or so before the population size is reached again that had been uh, already reached in, um, in the 14th century. And once again, look at the, um, at the 17th century, that is the century uh, of uh, the Thirty Years' War. Um, 
that is, uh, compares the numbers from 1600 to uh, 1650, you find again um, that there is a significant um, decline in, uh, in population, which indicates, in this case, uh, m major, major wars, major destruction, um, and, um, and so forth. And only from 1650 on do we see then an uninterrupted rise in the number of population. From 1650 to 1850, uh, the doubling of the population requires about 200 years. Then from 1850 to 1950, the doubling of the population is about every 100 years. Um, and after 1950, the doubling is, uh, requires less than um, 50, 50 years. Um, another interesting look in all this is uh, to look at the, at the growth of cities. Um, again, city growth being, so to speak, a rough indicator of what happens to capital accumulation. Um, before 1600, um, almost the, the 10 largest or the 11 largest cities were outside of Europe. Um, in the order of magnitude, um, that is around 1600, they were Beijing, which had more than 700,000, Istanbul, which had about 700,000, uh, Agra in India, 500,000, Cairo, 400,000, Osaka, 400,000, Canton, uh, 350,000, Yedo, which is, I think, Tokyo, uh, 350,000, Kyoto, also 350,000, Hangzhou, 350,000, and Lahore, uh, 350,000, and Nanking, uh, somewhat above 300,000. Um, that corresponds roughly with what we know about the world until 1500 or so, there was absolutely no doubt that China was far more developed as a civilization than Western, Western Europe. Um, I will explain in uh, later lectures what um, might be the causes of the change um, of this. Um, but um, interesting are now also the uh, on the last page of this uh, handout, um, the rapid growth of European cities, which, as I said, were at this time comparatively small to Asian cities, but nonetheless spring up in large numbers and show uh, a dynamic, especially in the later uh, century, that is unsurpassed by uh, by, Asian, uh, by Asian cities. I just want to make you aware first of the, uh, of the, these are the 30 largest cities in Europe in the period from 1050 to uh, 
1800. Uh, first, take a look at the at the total total numbers at the very bottom, um, and you see, of course, that the total numbers uh, always go up, um, but they do go up in a particularly drastic way only from uh, about 16. 50 on and before the growth is uh, comparatively moderate. But if we take a look at, um, at some specific cities, we can also see, so to speak, uh, in which way the centers of economic development uh, changed, uh, which places uh, lost in significance where obviously political events must have taken place that were unfavorable to capital accumulation, and how other places show a rapid increase in their ranks among uh, the top 30 um, places. Let me just uh, pick out a few, uh, a few places here. Um, Cordoba. Um, was uh, the biggest city in uh, in 1050. Uh, um, these are in thousands. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the first two numbers are 250,000, uh, 450, and 350,000 are somewhat disputed. That is noted in that footnote. So I. Um, I put the more realistic numbers on there, 150,000 and 120,000 for these two uh, cities. Otherwise, that seems to be somewhat disproportionate. Um, but in any case, Cordoba, uh, the biggest city in uh, 1050, uh, has completely dropped out of the top 30 by 1500. Um, there's a general tendency that we can say uh, that uh, Spanish cities, and or even more general, southern European cities, uh, lost increasingly in significance, and uh, the center of economic development and capital accumulation uh, shifted to the north. Um, uh, take some other spectacular uh, mm, cities here. Um, uh, Palermo, for instance, which you realize is the second biggest city around 1000, um, has no more inhabitants in 1800 uh, than it has uh, in 1000. Uh, obviously, Palermo was not exactly the center of economic development uh, during this uh, time, but was, so to speak, a dying city. Um, the same is also true for Seville. Um, again, Seville ranks number three in uh, in thousand, and uh, and has uh, hundreds of years uh, later a population that is uh, uh, not in any way, uh, in any significant way, uh, larger. Um, then look at. Uh, the spectacular um, rise of, uh, of Florence since uh, 1330. Um, 
that is um, uh, 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 spectacular rise until 13 uh, un until 1330. Um, so Florence. Um, is the lowest one in the first in the first column was uh, was 15 million at at 1,000, um, and then moves rapidly up the rank order um, uh, until about 1330, where it has increased from 15,000 to 95,000, and then a decline of uh, Florence takes place. Um, look at the, the spectacular growth of, um, of London, um, which uh, in, the last, in the last column, of course, um, is by far the biggest European city. Um, in the previous column is the second biggest in uh, uh, in the 1500 uh, column, it has just 50,000 inhabitants. Um, and uh, in uh, 1330, only 35,000 inhabitants. So in this period from 1330 to 1800, a, a spectacular rise of London, again indicating obviously a very favorable uh, climate for capital accumulation um, that existed there. Uh, and interesting are also some cases of uh, decline. Um, uh, for instance, there is a very quick rise and a very quick fall of Bruges or Brugge uh, in uh, what would be uh, Belgium. Uh, uh, today. Um, and then uh, the place of Bruges, after it falls, obviously the uh, economic environment becomes very unfriendly. We see then, uh, as a substitute, a very quick rise uh, in the city size of Ghent, which is very <coughs> almost neighbor city, so to speak, um, which indicates to what extent very narrow, uh, narrow neighbor cities competed against uh, each other for capital accumulation and for merchants uh, settling at, at, at those places. And uh, again, then also falls very quickly um, in order to be overtaken by another place very close by, that is Antwerp. Um, and then Antwerp falls also very quickly. And then we see a spectacular rise of Amsterdam. Again, a place very, very close uh, to, uh, uh, to Antwerp. Uh, again, illustrating, so to speak, in this case also, the mobility of capital, uh, leaving one place because it offers less favorable conditions for capital accumulation and moving it to places not far away and exhibiting there uh, a spectacular growth. And a similar spectacular growth you find, for instance, with the city of Hamburg. Um, with this, I'm done for this lecture. And again, I thank you for your attention.
60 years, and some of the countries that have had dramatic population increases, like Egypt, perhaps, or Kenya and Africa, some of the cities in South America, I mean, based on this analysis, then we would have to regard those as being centers of economic development and accumulation of capital? Um, several things have to be said to this. Um, for, first of all, um, we have, um, uh, within the last uh, hundred years, of course, uh, developed methods of, um, of birth, birth control that somehow uh, distort, so to speak, the natural tendencies that you see. Second, in those countries, we have to keep in mind um, also that um, because of very corrupt governments, uh, people from the countryside have moved into, uh, into the capital city. So that was less so of an organic growth of cities, but, uh, uh, but almost a, f a, a, f a forced resettlement of people from the countryside into, um, uh, into cities. Um, and thirdly, yes, we can say this, uh, that, uh, that the overall world population has still risen drastically, does indicate that the overall wealth in society in the world as a whole has dramatically increased, even, even within the last century. Uh, that is, many of these people that populate these countries would in the 19th century simply have died. Um, so as far as your question is concerned, um, uh, yes and no. It does indicate that things have also improved in those places. Um, it would over, overstate, so to speak, um, the advances that those countries have made as compared with the Western world, because in the Western world we do not see that spectac spectacular population growth in cities anymore as we see in those. This overstatement is, as far as I can see, uh, mainly, mainly due to the fact that these are just political, political capitals uh, uh, and uh, where the population uh, uh, can um, best participate in the political looting process that goes on in, in these countries. There's people leaving the countryside um, because the cities actually exploit, exploit the countryside. Um, and, for, and force the depopulation of the, countries, the countryside. Um, just, just take examples like, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, where we have Mugabe, what's the country? Zimbabwe. Um, now there you can see, for instance, that uh, a government that expropriates the farmers, um, uh, contributes, of course, to the depopulation of the countryside. And if you are robbed of your land, uh, where will you go? You will, of course, go into the cities where you can live out of the garbage can, so to speak, 
and, and hope for some sort of political connections getting you here or getting you there. So I think the entire 20th century uh, is not as suitable when it comes to is city size and population growth a good indicator of capital accumulation as previous centuries were. Um, there is of uh, yes of course there is uh, there is a welfare incentive one has to uh, if I would have had the time to go into the various cities in greater detail uh, cities can be merchant cities um, which would be sort of cities that grow by and large organically uh, or cities can of course also increase in size because the government uh, located their residents to this, uh, to this place and then a large number of the population are simply hangers on uh, instead of being uh, productive individuals. One of, one of the big differences in this regard between uh, the European cities and the Chinese, the uh, Asian cities, is precisely that the European cities, even though they were initially much smaller, um, were predominantly uh, merchant cities, uh, productive cities, or cities that were capital, capitals of very small princes. Um, whereas these big cities in uh, in Asia um, were uh, more, at least in the, in the typical case, uh, more capital, capital towns with large contingents uh, of bureaucracy where only a smaller proportion of the people actually conducted themselves in productive enterprises uh, as, compared to, uh, as compared to Europe. But again, those, those ideological things I will uh, come back to tomorrow in, uh, in, uh, in greater detail to, to show, so to speak, the unique character uh, of, European, uh, of Europe and European cities as compared to uh, other places in the world. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think, Mises talked about in his book, Liberalism, uh, about the potential for the movement of capital, how economic growth in other parts of the world could actually proceed once they got capital because of mobility more quickly than it took the West to build it up. So in the 20th century, could it also be a combination of the fact that um, they didn't have two world wars occurring in certain other parts of the globe that took up you know 40 years of, the, of uh, time, and then also that these were times when Western capitals and techniques are just starting to really Catch on. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, has, it has definitely something to do with it. <coughs> one, one also has to recognize that some of these Asian cities are indeed productive cities. For instance, a place like Seoul, uh, whatever, 15 million people or something like that is a bustling, bustling place. Uh, so that does indicate, so to speak, that, uh, that South Korea is is a country where a lot of capital accumulation does take place. Um, I think also uh, recently the spectacular growth that you have of some Chinese cities are also due to the fact that indeed 
um, uh, whereas for a long time in communist China, for instance, restrictions existed for people to move from places to places, where people were tied, so to speak, to uh, you have to stay here, you cannot leave this province, you have to stay in this village and so forth. Now that in the southern part of China, uh, capitalism has been allowed, private property is allowed all of a sudden, you see that the influx of population into those cities and their spectacular growth can indeed be referred to as an organic, organic growth. That is, there is indeed uh, much, there are many riches to be made in those places and, and people are attracted to, uh, to go to these places and they are also hustling and bustling places with large amounts of uh, capital accumulation. I have not traveled in, in China, but what I hear, this is that uh, uh, large parts of China look like one big uh, construction, uh, uh, construction business. Um, and I have, I did visit uh, South Korea a few times. That was my impression uh, too, at least in, uh, in large parts of it, um, that uh, uh, this, this growth is, so to speak, largely, largely organic. Um, some of the numbers are, of course, also numbers where we have to keep in mind, uh, uh, they might just say, Seoul and all the surrounding towns are considered to be part of Seoul. Uh, worse, when we talk about New York City, New York City, of course, uh, is then separated from various other, whatever, uh, uh, New Jersey towns, which are basically in the same uh, uh, conglomerate and if we would uh, count all of them we would get these spectacular numbers in the west um, in the west as well it is just for administrative reasons that they frequently do not appear as one huge city with huge numbers of people living there but as uh, but as several uh, large cities the same would apply to Los Angeles I think the population of New York and Los Angeles has actually declined but not the entire metropolitan area around it. Yeah. I want to yeah. that entry you speak of southern China relative right. to leakage from Singapore. Singapore influence? No, 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 Singapore is too small in order to have an influence uh, on that. Singapore itself is, of course, a major, a, 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 a major place of attraction. Uh, and uh, a place like Hong Kong would also not have a major impact on, uh, on the rest of China. Uh, because, uh, I mean, as compared with the massive population that China has, Hong Kong is just a drop in the, uh, in the bucket. It didn't leak out into the Hong Kong is what I really meant. Leak out into the countryside? Uh, uh, yeah, it leaked out to a certain extent, but, uh, but there, is, there are also processes going in the opposite direction. China rather than northern China, why was the influence down there? Um, I must say I do not know enough about China to explain why southern China has been developed uh, more so than uh, than northern China. That uh, that might have been political decisions. Uh, it might have been 
uh, it might have been a different mentality. There exist uh, significant ethnic differences between northern Chinese and southern Chinese. My sense to the China through the years is the hierarchies have been in conflict, but at the level of the community, it's had very much an exchange economy, quite contrary to yeah, yeah. For many, for many years, it has been the case, and of course, Chinese outside of China have been always spectacular, uh, very successful. Right. You had, uh, you want to make a yeah, comment? I just wanted to say, like, I, I guess that um, success stories of Hong Kong and uh, Singapore and, and the other uh, Asian tigers does definitely have intellectually a an influence on mentality in China, which does also have its effect and indirectly on of course. like Shanghai and Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Included, uh, in studying the twentieth century, we can't necessarily draw this correlation between uh, population and city growth with capital accumulation. It becomes a, a less good indicator. Yeah. Skewed, right. Um, is there anything that you found that that's as a result more of interventionist policy or monetary policy? In other words, is it necessarily one or the other or just a full combination? In other words, are there any countries where you found that maybe there's intervention, but they've still got relatively sound money or vice versa? There's not much intervention. However, having unsound money, loose banking and whatnot is kind of... I have, I have not investigated, uh, investigated that. Um, that might be an interesting thing to look at, but... Uh, I have to do that another time. <laughs> In that case, again, I, th I thank you very much for your attention.